You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 29th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, gentlemen and lady. Happy Leap Day. (gasps) Happy Leap Day. It is This is the only time we have recorded a show on February 29th, and it may be a long time before we get an opportunity to do so again. That's true. Yeah. Very very exciting. So explain to me Leap Day, Leap Year, what's happening here? (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, okay, so... Our current calendar is 365 days in a year. However, the way we figure up days does not have anything to do with the way we figure up what makes a year. And so there aren't exactly 365 days in one year. There are actually 365 and a quarter days, almost, sort of. Almost, roughly. Uh, yeah. And so... uh to make up that quarter every four years, we add an extra day. Of course, that is not true. It is a an oversimplification. Because every four years, we add one day unless that year is divisible by 100, but not by 400. And we do that because it's not exactly 365 days and a quarter. Uh, it's 365.2422. Good. Yeah. So that's about as close as we can get it at the moment. We can get it even closer by, I believe, skipping a leap year every 4,000 years, and then that'll put us back on track. But right now, the way we're doing it, it keeps us pretty much on track. I think it's a pretty good system, all told. It um, is. Yeah. And it's it interesting how long it took us to get there. I mean, the ancient Greeks knew, you know, how many days it took uh, took us to go around the sun. They knew down to those decimals, you know, that it wasn't exactly 365 days. But, you know, the, the history of the human calendar is long and arduous, Uh in fact, there are tons of places where, as recently as the 1700s, whole countries have skipped an entire week or two, uh, usually I think it's 11 days or so, so that they could uh, catch up to the rest of the world, switching from uh, the uh, Gregorian Julian. calendar to the Julian ca- calendar. Oh, and because of that switch, Sweden in the 1700s actually had a February 30th of 1712 uh, it happened only once. It was never to happen again. Poor Imagine February. You were born, born on, on that, that day. day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never get another birthday. <laughs> never. Never you're age. St- awesome. Stuck in limbo. <laughs> Do you know that in the Chinese calendar, they have a leap month that they add uh, the, every the, like 16 or 17 years? They is, it the month really? fro- is it the year mm-hmm. of the frog or something? They add an extra month. Really? Yeah. Do you know what that is called? Leap month. They have a they have a loony solar calendar. It's called an embolismic embolismic month. Oh, really? I didn't hear that one. The the term I came across was intercalation, which is the assert, which which is the insertion of a leap day, week, or month. So that would yeah. fall under that rubric. And here's this is one of my favorite bits of astronomical trivia. Do you know how many times 
the Earth rotates on its axis in one year. 364 and change? Something like that. I kind of got the right idea, but you... Uh, just Yeah, but there's a little extra rotation, wrong way. though, because... Yeah, it's 366. Oh, yeah. it was... Yeah. yeah, we actually talked Come about that. Yeah, because every oh, time... Disaster. It, yeah. Because it, as it travels around the sun, it has to rotate a little bit farther each day, and that adds up to one day. So it actually mm-hmm. has to rotate one extra time as it moves around the sun. Cool. Yeah, one thing I'll throw in, um, as as good as the leap year idea is, and the uh, the the end-of-century leap year that, that Rebecca mentioned, so we are, we are still about 30 seconds off every year, which isn't much, but it does add up, and I think it, the number is 3,300 years in about that time. We'll have another. We'll, we'll be off by a day. That's, so that means the calendar year will will have diverged from the solar year by by an entire day. So I wonder if if this if this concept is even around in three millennia. Uh, will they will they actually add an extra day uh, then uh, to? Uh, uh, I actually I just looked it up and it was um, astronomer John Herschel in the 19th century who proposed. Uh, a an extra um, skipping the leap day on years divisible by four thousand. Herschel, good man. <laughs> right, well, it's more than you ever wanted to know about leap year. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I wish I didn't ask. <laughs> it's also Saint Oswald's Day, <laughs> and there's even more. <laughs> oh, it's also um, the International Day of Rare Diseases, I believe. Which, <laughs> what? Yeah, I always thought was kind of clever. <laughs> what do you hang out with people that have rare diseases and talk about your stuff? Like, what do you do? I think it's kind of like any other awareness day. Do you know where the National Organization of Rare Diseases has its headquarters? Um, Deathville, Wyoming? <laughs> nope. New Fairfield, Connecticut. What? No Whoa. shit. No. And rare diseases don't necessarily end in death. So yeah, that's true. Just putting uh, that out there. That's Well, just so people know, that's the town that we grew up in. Yeah. All right. Jay, tell okay. us about... Oh, oh, God. Wait, one other thing. Quickly. <laughs> Very quickly, very quickly. Very quickly. We can only do this once every four years, folks. I just wanted to mention that this year is special because there will also be a leap second introduced on June 30th, 2012. We could talk about that closer to then. Why don't they, why leap week, month, year, like why don't they just put them all together, make it all happen at the same time? Well, we'll talk about it in June. Leap time. All right, Jay, tell us about our favorite prehistoric man. So you guys know who, it's Fred. Flintstone. (laughs) <laughs> he comes from a modern Stone Age family. Do, do you guys know who Utsi the Iceman oh, yeah. is? Yeah. Who, who, Utsi? He's my favorite tattooed ancient dead person. <laughs> well, I, I read a lot about Utsi recently, and I didn't know anything about this guy other than oh. they found some frozen dude you know, years and years ago. So here's a quick one, too. Utsi the Iceman. It's a name that was given to a well-preserved natural mummy of a man who lived about 5,300 years ago. So Utsi was found in 1991 in the Otsal Alps on the border between Austria and Italy by two German tourists. Uh, he, he's Europe's oldest natural human mummy and has offered an unprecedented view of, of Calcolithic Europeans. His body and belongings are displayed in the, the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Bolzano, South Tyrol, and Every single word I just said, I could have mispronounced, and I'm sorry if I did. He was about 1.65 meters or 5 feet 5 inches tall. He weighed about 50 kilograms or 110 pounds, so he wasn't a big guy, and estimated to be about 45 years old. And if you haven't read, if you haven't read about him, it's re- actually really cool. Like the, the things that they found out about this person that used to live by his corpse 
is pretty amazing. The scientists collected an incredible amount of information on him by studying the contents of his stomach and analyzing his hair and taking samples of pollen that they found all over him and in the food that he ate and the grains that he was eating. So I dare any pseudoscience to try and collect this kind of data with this kind of accuracy. He is like the most studied mummy in existence. I mean, he's been having one high-tech evaluation after another for the last 20 years. So what's happening is up until recently, they knew little about his genetics. But finally, Utsi's full genome has been reported in Nature Communications. So his mitochondrial DNA was found and analyzed in 2008. And although this gave them some information, it was nowhere near the complete picture. In this latest study, though, they were able to perform next-generation whole genome sequencing that revealed a much more complete genetic snapshot found in the uh, nuclei of Utsi's cells. So nuclear DNA is rarer and typically less well-preserved than DNA within the mitochondria. Albert Zink from the Urach Institute for Mummies said that whole genome sequencing allows you to sequence the whole DNA out of one sample. That wasn't possible before in the same way. They now know that he had brown eyes, he's type O blood, he was lactose intolerant, and he was predisposed to heart disease. And he had a fabulous singing voice. <laughs> they found all this stuff out, though, just by they had this advanced uh, you know, testing that they did on his genome sequencing. They also discovered that he had been infected with Lyme disease oh, or the, or the Lyme, Lyme disease. disease bacterium. Yeah. And uh, that makes him the first documented case of this infection, which is pretty interesting. And after analyzing anomalies that they found in his DNA, they found that he was more closely related to modern inhab- inhabitants of Corsica or Sardinia, They said that it's more likely that he is from those places than from the Alps where they found his corpse. And I was wondering if that means that he himself traveled from those two islands, which can be found nestled between France and Italy, or maybe his ancestors were from there. But to continue down that same questioning, they found that some of his DNA sequences showed his ancestors were likely to have migrated from the Middle East. So going even farther back, you know, they can show where his people came from and how they migrated. And Zink, the, the scientist that I mentioned earlier, said that they are only just beginning the analysis of this, of this new data, and that means that there's a lot more stuff on the way that we're going to find out about him. Did you know that the Iceman has tattoos on his body that correspond to acupuncture points? Oh, That's no. why I uh, mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Think about that. Think about that cultural contamination, though. You know, th- this is a guy from Sardinia found in the Alps with what with a tradition that we now um, associate with the Far East, and this you know re- really implies that the the whole notion of bloodletting versus acupuncture, whatever these ideas were just floating around Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, and they were all shared and influenced each other. And it, huh. it, these weren't you know completely separate ideas that you know that fo- formed independently in these in isolated cultures. They were really shared ideas among these various cultures. That is really cool. You know, they found that um, by studying pollen that they found on him, if you read some of the literature here, they were able to tell what time of year he died. And by the way, he was murdered, they found. I don't know if you guys knew that, they, yeah. that he was shot yeah. by an arrow. In the well, well, murder, 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 thing. <laughs> could be, could be aggravated the, manslaughter the, or something. The funny thing is that they were, they were trying to determine his cause of death for uh, quite a long time, and then just by accident, somebody... <laughs> just happened to notice oh look there's an arrowhead in his back <laughs> yeah. and he, I, like how did they miss that i mean they, they did all sorts of x-rays and mris and cat they did everything on him and nobody noticed his arrowhead stuck in his uh you know stuck in his uh, latissimus dorsi 
Yeah, that's back. That was too. funny. So I will close. I will close this second segment with Utsi has chutzpah. You think so? <laughs> it, we are going to hear more stories about him. I mean, this is he's still what an amazing find, and you know, you've done twenty years of research uh, unraveling the information from this one find. It really is an important window, you know, into this bit of our past. All right, well, let's move on. Bob, there is an important update about a story, perhaps what we we thought was one of, if not the biggest science news story of 2011, the alleged neutrinos traveling faster than the speed of light. Tell us what's going on. So, yeah, we've got uh, another important update on on what I call one of the biggest and most unlikely to be true science stories of (laughs) 2011. And I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of this. But you guys remember, of course, the whole neutrinos traveling faster than light hubbub from last fall. It was such a huge, huge item. It seems now that CERN may have uncovered a maximally mundane explanation for their results. Uh, many online accounts that I read, anyway, ascribe it to something as boring and apparently knuckleheaded as a loose wire. But as we'll see, reality is much more interesting and complicated than that. Uh, just real quickly... Um, Scientists at CERN uh, last year revealed that they had spent three years shooting a a ghostly beam of neutrinos through through the Earth from Switzerland to Italy, and they surprisingly and consistently confirmed that the beam arrived 60 nanoseconds earlier than it should have, meaning that that, uh, they were traveling faster than the speed of light. And, of course, this should not merely be hard, but downright impossible, according to everything that that physics tells us. Most of the scientists, including the CERN researchers themselves, knew this, and much of the scientific discourse on this topic was concerned with reasonable explanations for, for the anomaly. Now, it, it turns out that CERN has continued to investigate this, and uh, they may have hit upon the, the, the problem. What they recently revealed, however, is not as simple as a loose wire, as you may have been led to believe if you, if you were kind of perusing the news sites discussing this. That's actually an insulting description of what they uncovered, don't you think? I mean, don't you feel really stupid when you know, you're, you're messing around with an electrical device and you can't get it to work and you discover that the plug wasn't all the way in or worse, it, it, it's not plugged in at all, right? It kind of something that happens to everybody every now and then. And that's kind of the image that many uh, headlines and news reports are conjuring. It's like, oh, these stupid scientists, they had a loose plug and they didn't even know it. And But that's not really what happened at all. So in reality, it wasn't a loose plug, but a misaligned optical cable. Now, this cable was really important. It sent critical timing signals to the master clock of the, um, of the, ex- of the experimental setup. Through extensive detective work, this wasn't easy at all. They realized that this timing signal would be delayed by minute fractions of a second if it weren't aligned perfectly. Now, this delay would then cause a misreporting of the neutrino transit time, making them seem faster than they, than they really are. Actually, they, they don't know what happened during the years that they were doing these rep- these experiments they don't know um if this optical cable was actually aligned perfectly or not so they're not even sure how much of a factor this is but that wasn't even the only potential problem though the other was an oscillator that was in that same clock that kept that kept time before and after these timing signals came in so you'd have these timing signals coming in from the optical cable to make sure everything was synchronized and right. And then you had the oscillator who was keeping time in between these these timing signals that would occasionally come in from the optical cable. So the oscillator, unfortunately, seems not to have been the best of timekeepers. It was running a little fast. 
Now, this would then make the neutrinos seem to take longer to reach their destination, slowing down their apparent speed. So what we have then are these two separate sources of potential error that are in opposition to each other. Also, they don't yet even know what the magnitude of these errors are. So the result then is that un- un- there's an uncertainty as to what the net effect was. You know, these two glitches could have perfectly canceled each other out. It's possible. And that would mean that there must be yet another source of error. Or the other possibility is that the neutrinos can really go faster than light. You know, guess which one is most likely. Pretty obvious, I think. But uh, so this could, of course, also mean that the net effect was to slow down or speed up the apparent speed of the neutrino. So the, the point is that this, al- this anomaly has not yet been fully resolved. And with the, there's definitely more work to be done to actually find out if these two potential problems actually caused uh, this apparent uh, increase in speed of neutrinos. So stay tuned yet again for more neutrino stuff uh, coming down the pike later this year. Well, I imagine they're going to realign, recalibrate, and retest and then come up with new results. Right. Yeah, that's what they're going to have to do. They've got to fix this, see what happens, and do, the te- do more tests. It's a good example of the scientific process, right? Oh, they, my God. It's a, it's oh, a yeah. beautiful example. They, they were aware that something weird was going on. They didn't just say, hey, you know, look at this, and then start making products off of their find. You know, they decided that to retest... And then their their testing was replicated in other places and everything, and the truth comes out. Yeah, I mean, there the bottom go. line to me is that now the error bars encompass the, the neutrinos, neutrinos going at the speed of light, right? The speed that we thought they we were supposed to go. It's not that it encompasses right. the right answer. And uh, until those error bars are narrowed, yeah. This is now meaningless. There's, there, there's, you know what I mean. The mystery's gone until unless they fix everything, narrow those error bars, and the answer is outside of the range of uh, what current physics can explain. But this essentially erases the claim of faster than light neutrinos. Were they wrong to do the initial reporting? No, I think they had vetted it to such a degree. You reach a point where you're like, all right, uh, uh, we give up. We've uh, not give up, but we've we've done it a very reasonable amount of, of testing and verifying and rechecking and all that. Let's, and it was time to bring other people in and start a wider discussion, and, that, and that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think they handled it exactly as they should. They did everything they could that by themselves, when they were exhausted, what they could think of, they, they opened it up to the broader scientific community, mainly with the notion of help us figure out what we did wrong. You know, and I've talked before about the fact that this is, this is what happens. This is the process of science. The only thing that's different now, if anything, is that the media is sort of peeking over the shoulder of the scientist and reporting on the process as it's happening. So now the public is seeing the sausage being made, right? It's seeing all the messiness. And and they're being scandalized huh. by the fact that scientists are people who make mistakes and are wrong and have incomplete knowledge and all of that <laughs> stuff. Uh, I My hope is that eventually – you know, through the efforts of you know public education about science and and access to information over the internet, that eventually the, the the public will more completely get it. They'll get the notion that okay, this is what happens. And then the next time somebody announces some uh, law breaking, you know, law of science breaking discovery, they'll be more mature in dealing with that news and go, oh, okay, so we, this probably didn't just break the laws of physics. It has to be vetted. It has to, you know, uh, we, we ha- it has to go through the meek grinder of peer review, et cetera, et cetera. They'll be familiar with the process, and they won't be so scandalized by it or easily duped by it. We have another follow-up talking about messy science. Rebecca, 
uh, on last week's show, we, we talked about the Heartland Institute revelations, but we uh, recorded that before some important revelations came to light. So get us up to date on that story. Yeah, there have been a couple of new uh, happenings, none of which changed the central theme of what we talked about last week, but they are important to the story. Just to bring everyone up to speed, um, what we talked about before was this huge leak of documents from the global warming denialist think tank Heartland. And that showed their anti-science bent and their focus on lobbying rather than any kind of education. The document showed that most of the global warming denialism at Heartland was funded by a single anonymous donor, but there were also several large corporations listed as major donors as well, which I mentioned on the show. Uh, for instance, one was oil conglomerate Coke Industries, which makes sense because they're well known for putting millions of dollars into lobbying in favor of anti-science legislation and the like, uh, because it directly benefits them. But another company mentioned was Microsoft, which has a public stance on climate change that aligns with the scientific consensus. Microsoft has since issued a statement that the $60,000 that they contributed to Heartland were in the form of software licenses, which they give to any eligible nonprofit organization. In the statement they released, Microsoft reaffirmed their support for, and I quote, government action to create market-based mechanisms to address climate change. However, by saying that Heartland was eligible for the software licenses, Microsoft is apparently confirming that they, and I quote again, have a mission to benefit the local community, which includes advancing education and preserving or restoring the environment. Neither of those is anywhere near to being in line with an organization that we now know funds people to spread anti-science talking points. Uh, but that said, Microsoft is saying that it was just software licenses. The other news, the bigger news that came out about the uh, Heartland documents is that the leaker of the documents came forward. Turns out it was Peter Glick who is a well-known climate scientist yep. who many in our audience probably know because he's spoken at several skeptical conferences like Skeptical. Uh, Glick claimed that an anonymous person forwarded him the climate strategy memo, which I mentioned in my previous report. That's the one that I was talking about that Hartland claimed was the only one of the doc documents that was fake. I mentioned that it was the one with the most damning pool quotes. Uh, though every fact in that document was verified by the other documents. Well, Glick received that document and he wanted to verify it. So he emailed Heartland with an assumed name and he got the other materials, which, as I mentioned, did in fact verify that document. He then sent the entire package to the various climate bloggers and that's when the whole to-do began. Glick admitted that his actions in acquiring the documents were the result of a lapse of professional judgment and ethics. And just prior to his announcement, he resigned as chair of the American Geophysical Union Task Force on Scientific Ethics. And shortly after, he requested a leave of absence from Pacific Institute. So since then, scientists, journalists, and science popularizers have been engaged in this seemingly never-ending discussion of whether or not the ends justify the means. Some say that Glick has lost all credibility as a scientist and as a communicator because he used deception. Uh, and for instance, Eugenie Scott's organization, NCSE, reversed a decision to add Glick to its board because of what came to light. 
But others say that the damage Heartland was doing by secretly funding anti-science promoters whose express purpose is to create fake controversies surrounding established science justifies it. I mean, it, it appears at this point as though the bad press may actually inhibit Heartland's ability to promote pseudoscience. So to give you an example of that line of thinking, in an article in The Guardian this week, James Garvey argues that Glick's actions are comparable to Ben Goldacre's use of deception to get his dead cat membership to a body mm -hmm. of nutritional consultants. Uh, Garvey says that he thinks more climate scientists should stand up against people, and I'm quoting from him, stand up against people who misrepresent climate science just as evolutionists and medical doctors fight equally absurd claims in their domains. So it's all up in the air at this point. So I'll throw it to you guys. Do you think that Glick's actions were worth it? Well, can I say, first of all, I think that it's actually irrelevant to the big issue, the bigger issue, which is what does the are these documents real and what do they tell us about Heartland? How they were obtained is actually irrelevant to that point. Well, that point is is settled at yeah. this point. I mean, the documents are real and, you know, I think everybody pretty much agrees that they, maybe not everybody agrees, but, you know, everybody on the side of the science seems to agree that, you know, what we, what we talked about in the last episode still stands, that these are yes. damning documents that show, you know, a, a supposed think tank tank that's actually spending all of its time and money on lobbying and, promoting anti-science. Yeah, I agree. Points. Although if you read the comments to Skeptic Blog where we talked about it, certainly the, the, the other side is not accepting that. They're still claiming that that one document is fake you know, you, you, and using that to try to say that you know, th there's nothing going on here, like ignore the man behind the curtain kind of, kind of thing. Right. But that to me is just ignoring facts because you know, regardless of if that document is fake, and you know, I said at the outset that that's you know, the one that Heartland was saying is fake, but the facts of the matter are that every statement in that document, every fact in that document is supported by the other documents that yeah. we've verified. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but I think the, the problem is that with Glick's admission that he used uh, identity fraud in order to obtain the documents, I think that is an interesting question of ethics. You know, was he right to do it? Is it kind of like the same as Randy going into, you know, to to see the the faith healer, but he's dressing up as someone else and kind of pretending to be someone else in order to get, you know, the expected results? Is it you kind of equated along those those kinds of I lines? I think it's similar, but the one difference is Randy is a magician and Glick yeah. is a scientist, and that's the issue. Is that when you are a member of a profession that relies upon transparency and honesty, uh, doing that kind of thing can compromise your integrity. Uh, he should have just, you know, not given in the t to the temptation, you know, to do that and keep his hands clean. Yeah, because I, I think the real damage here is that any future statement from Glick, any, any promotion he does for the actual science behind climate change yeah. will be dismissed by people who feel that they can dismiss facts by saying, well, but look what he did. You know, he did this unethical thing. Therefore, we can't trust anything he says. Right, so, right. I mean, this has come up... Is, and that is damaging. This has come up with, with us, like, doing investigations. You know, how much subterfuge can we use? And we've erred on the side of not doing dishonest things because we're worried that it will affect our reputation for honesty. You know, even though the ends are uh, maybe may have some benefit and, again, the documents are what they are and, and you could argue that the public should have access to them... You know, it might have been better for him to just try to 
publicly persuade Heartland to release uh, this kind of information? I don't know. Maybe that that would be kind of naive or pointless, mm-hmm. but it, it it is tricky. It's unfortunate, but I, I think that uh, as a scientist, he shouldn't have done it. Is the bottom line? Yeah, I agree with that. But somebody had to do but it. Somebody had to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody else. Did but I, I'm certainly glad I have the information. You know. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I agree with how it was obtained. You know, in the future, if there's any scientists out there that need this type of work done, email me. It will not hurt my reputation at all. I'm happy to do it. Janovella at gmail.com. Thank you. Uh, let me give you another example. But in my flood of emails, one day I got an email from somebody claiming to be a member of the group Anonymous. These are, this is a group of hackers yeah. who, yep. you know, who cause mischief in the name of what they consider to be good. And essentially this person said, hey, love the SGU. I'm a member of Anonymous. Uh, just tell me what organization's website would you like to see taken down? Oh, oh. gosh. Great. So the Internet Mafia, yeah. in a sense, yeah. sort of dealing with at that point. You want, like, their website to kind of have an accident or something? Right. I, think that's a, that's a, I think that's a really good um, example, Steve, because, I mean, Anonymous did take down... Westboro Baptist Church's website. I think we can all agree that WBC yeah. are horrific yeah. people, but I don't agree with that at all. To me, that's that's a form of censorship, you know, yeah. and it shouldn't have been done. Yeah, there's, there's a good chance, Steve, that that was uh, just a, a total setup, just to see and potentially publicize, you know, that that you might have acquiesced and agreed to do yeah. it, and that, well, gotcha that, that and from that angle, that would have been really bad. And and if that's what it is. Um, this guy, if you want, you you can just you can call me about it, uh, and my number is one eight hundred eat shit. No, even you know, even if we assume it, you're right, Bob. <laughs> you never know; it could have been a setup, a, a, a sting operation. But even if it was completely legitimate, I just don't I just don't think it's the kind of thing that we should have anything to do with. Definitely not. I agree. Yeah, but in that case, though, that's I, I will say that that does differ for me from the Heartland case because to me. You know, I don't even agree with the ends in that case. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, the the means d- don't really matter at that point. Um, but in the in, in in the case of Heartland, you know, I I one hundred percent agree with the ends. All right, well, let's move on, Evan. Uh, there's been some news item recently about drug testing sports, and, and you've been desperate to get yeah. any sports related news item into, onto the show, <laughs> and so what? you managed to con. You managed oh, to convince desperate. me to include this one. So tell us about it. <laughs> All right. That'd be good. There's been a big brouhaha in the world of professional baseball this past week. Ryan Braun is an outfielder for the Milwaukee Brewers baseball team. And he also happens to be the reigning most valuable player of the National League. So this is a big superstar in the sport. This past December, it was announced that Braun had tested positive for a performance-enhancing drug. The penalty for first-time offenders in baseball is a 50-game suspension and subsequent suspension of pay along with that. Now, a season's 162 games long, 50 games, that is a roughly about 30% of the season and 30% of your salary, in Braun's case, $7 bucks for the 2012 season. So, stood to lose a lot of money by this, you know, certainly in his reputation and other things. Braun's urine samples, they were collected in October of 2011. This was during the playoffs. The Brewers were in the playoffs. And he tested positive for synthetic testosterone in his body. Uh A normal adult male's testosterone to epitestosterone ratio is about one to one. 
And the rules of baseball allow that ratio to be as high as 4 to 1. But Ryan Braun's ratio tested at 20 to 1. Oh. So he was way over the limit. Way over the limit. Now, doping and professional baseball, they've become somewhat synonymous in modern baseball times, which it's proved to be a big, serious problem for the league, which has sort of uh, gone beyond just the sport itself. It's made national and international headlines. You know, senators and congresspeople have been calling committee hearings and so forth. So it really is a big deal. And some of baseball's biggest players the last two decades have failed drug tests. They include Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, Alex Rodriguez, Sammy Sosa. And they all hold all these sports records in the league, home runs and so forth. I mean, these players are cheating. And to make things even worse, they're lying about it. They're lying under oath, in fact, to judges, congressional panels. But in 2005, baseball adopted their most current set of rules and regulations concerning illegal performance-enhancing drugs. Prior to that, prior to 2005, you got no suspension. All you would have to do is go receive treatment for your addiction, essentially, to these drugs. That was it. Um, If you get a second positive test result in baseball, it's a 100-game suspension. And third time, you're out. You're thrown out of baseball forever. Now, since the implementation of these new rules, every player that has tested positive has been afforded an appeals process. But in each each instance, the appeals process has held up, and those players have been suspended. But in Ryan Braun's case, in this case, he's the first player that has tested positive for these illegal drugs and had the suspension overturned by appeal. So what happened here? So why did Ryan Braun's suspension get overruled? Well, it wasn't because his samples were incorrectly analyzed or anything. No, his suspension was overturned because two of the three arbiters on the arbitration panel deemed that the process by which the samples were collected did not follow standard protocol. A technicality, essentially. A technicality, basically. And, you know, it's a pretty standard protocol is essential. I'll just run through this real quick. A professional collector from a sanctioned drug testing facility is present at the time of collection along with witnesses and chaperones. Lots of people involved in the process. The player pees in the jars. The jars are handed over to the collector. He seals them with tamper-resistant seals and puts an identification number on it, not the player's name just a test number, the player signs a document, then attesting that the sample's theirs, the collection process was all in order and in compliance with the rules. The samples then are sealed in another package and then sealed in a cardboard box, all with the identifying marks and tamper-proof seals. So three times these things are sealed. And then they get shipped off to a testing facility in Montreal. So this particular collection of Ryan Braun took place on a Saturday afternoon. The collector could not get it to a FedEx location in time for the shipment. So he had to keep the samples with him until Monday morning, right? So that's the technicality that they called him out on. And even though, yes, it's technically, right, you're supposed to get the samples in preferably the same day, but it's just that the timing of it all didn't work out. So baseball training camps opened this past week, and Ryan Braun made a statement to the press concerning the overturning of his suspension. And he called the entire system of drug testing fatally flawed with characteristics opposite the American judicial system. Uh, He claimed he won his appeal because the truth was on his side. And he was indicating, without specifically saying it, that he was somehow the victim and he was the one who was cheated in this process. He's questioning essentially the scientific validity of the process. The science is solid behind it. And, uh, you know, basically Ryan Braun got caught. He basically got off on a technicality, but he's out there sort of running his mouth saying about the validity of this whole process is wrong. I think it's reasonable for 
certainly fans of the game and people in general to take issue with Ryan Braun and his position on this entire issue. Well, if you have a, if you have a loyal enough fan base, all you need to do is give them plausible deniability, and they'll still love you. Yes, they will. But not here. We'll call them out on it. <laughs> Let, let's move on. One more quick news item. Uh, this is a completely shameless plug for my next course for the teaching company. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, a couple of years ago, I produced uh, a course for the for the teaching company. They have a series called The Great Courses, where they're essentially college-level courses, 12, 24, 36, or whatever, 30-minute lectures, audio and video. I did one on medical myths, lies and half-truths, what we think we know may be hurting us. Um, if you haven't seen that, check it out. Well, I'll have the link for this in the show notes as well as um, from my blog. And since then, they asked me to do a second course, which is coming out on March 2nd. Uh, so it'll be out by the time this podcast is up. And that one is on, essentially, it's on skepticism. It is The title is Your Deceptive Brain, and it's all about um, how... It's essentially the, the neuroscientific view of critical thinking. So in the first part of the course, I go over all the ways in which our brains are flawed and how our brains construct reality, that what we think of as the, you know, as the, the objective world around us is just this narrative that our brains construct for Thank you, us brain. that is flawed in many ways uh, based upon filtered perception on... Uh, lots My of brain's not flawed. It's reality's fault. Uh, That's right. The world revolves. The, the universe revolves around you, Jay. Right, and then we and then we take all of that flawed perception and our flawed model of reality, and then we we filter that through our hopes and desires and biases and everything. And you know, lots of lots of stuff that we talk about on the show. And then, of course, on the on the other end, I talk about how to use critical thinking skills in order to overcome and compensate for all of these flaws and biases. I, I go through it very systematically. Um, there's a lot of material in there that I've never discussed on the SGU. So even if you're someone who's listened to a lot of uh, episodes of the show, there's there's definitely new material there. Um, the process that the teaching company goes through is very good. I, you know, I'm very impressed with the editing, and you know, they they really work with you to develop the material to, so that it's um, you know, really the the, the best. You know, version of of your lectures that that they could be. So please check it out. They, I understand, they make wonderful gifts. <laughs> uh, if uh, there's that person in your life that you want would like to be subtle. more skeptical, this would be a, a really subtle. good introduction. Not subtle <laughs> at all. Shameless plug. Totally shameless plug. If this is honestly, I think it would be a very good introduction to why we are skeptics. It pretty much lays it out from beginning to end. Uh, you know, you come out the, it's a 24, 30 minute lectures. You come out the other end of that. It's hard, in my opinion, it'd be hard to really absorb that information and not be even a little bit more. Are you saying you, you don't get too technical? You don't get laid up, you know, bogged down in the jargon of neurology and, and so much, Steve? It's, I know it's, it's definitely meant to, to be accessible to, I, I assume no prior knowledge or no, no technical knowledge on the part of the listener or viewer. It's both, you know, audio and video. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm not talking to skeptics. I'm talking to a general audience. Somebody, uh, people. I assume. And I start from the beginning. I go through it systematically, assuming no prior knowledge. I encourage you to check it out. Where can they get it, Steve? 
I will have the links to it's if you look up the great courses and Stephen Novella, you will find it. it my two courses, Medical Myths and now Your Deceptive Brain. Uh, but I'll have the links on the show notes and on my on my neurological blog. Joining us now is Gordon Moppin. Gordon, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And Gordon, you are the director of the Wilderness Center, uh, which is in is that in Oklahoma? No, no. That I worked in Oklahoma once. It's in Ohio. Okay. In Ohio. Uh, which is a nature center and conservancy, and you are interested in the issue of fracking, which is the topic that we're going to be interviewing you about. So why don't you just start off by uh, telling us what your connection is with this issue of fracking and what is fracking? Just get our listeners up, up to speed on what we're talking about. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm interested in it only because it was thrust on me. This is not something I went out and looked for, believe me. Uh, but fracking is a technique for extracting natural gas and oil and other hydrocarbons from shale. And uh, it's become quite controversial uh, in a lot of areas of the country. There's a lot of it out there. There's big money on the line. And there are issues with it. And it's one of these things in a policy sense that the country has got to get right. And I certainly hope they do. So, and it yeah, I can go over it or you can go over it, but just technically what fracking involves in, is injecting under high pressure some kind of a hydraulic fluid, which is mostly water, but there's other stuff in there. And that uh, essentially extends or increases the natural fissures or cracks in in the rocks, uh, allowing channels for the hydrocarbons to flow through. That's exactly right. They've been fracking on vertical wells for a long, long time, you know, 40-plus years. With, you know, success, I mean, it, it it opens up the fissures and allows the gas to flow to the wellhead much better. What has become the big issue with a lot of controversy is when they go deep into these shale formations and then turn horizontal because the economics of getting the gas from the shale is you've got to have a much lar- longer contact with the formation that has the hydrocarbons so that you can get enough to come out of there to make it economical. And so they they drill vertically, then they turn horizontally and go horizontally for up to two miles. Wow. You know, it's a, it's a complicated technology, but then they essentially put usually water down at very, very, very high pressure to force open existing cracks in the shale, and in that water is what they call a propant. It's often sand that holds the cracks open when the pressure is released and allows the gas to flow out. Obviously, there's a whole lot more to it than that. How long have they been fracking? Well, you know, they have been fracking. That You know, one of the big things you hear about fracking from the, the industry side is, well, we've been doing it for 40 years. There's nothing new about this. And that, that is a true statement. I, I don't dispute that. But I would also say it is, it is equally a true statement to say that a rowboat and an aircraft carrier are both watercraft. Mm-hmm. The horizontal fracking involves orders of magnitude, more water, more pressure, you know, more opportunities for things to go wrong. 
why is fracking so controversial now? What are the environmental issues? And and uh, can you speak also to what what science do we have to inform us as to how safe or unsafe is this procedure? Boy, you know, that's where the crux of it all comes when you say right. what science do we have? You know, it's a relatively new technology. The issues, aside from burning more fossil fuels and you know, putting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Aside from that, water pollution is a big concern of both groundwater and surface water. The migration of frac water back to the surface uh, or communication of uh, fracked wells with other wells or with the surface. Uh, but Gordon, to get specific just on that one point, are we concerned about chemicals that they use for fracking or is it just oily water that we're worried about? They're, they're all essentially they're all stirred up together. The the chemicals, um, I actually worry less about the chemicals that are used in fracking. A lot of noise is made about those chemicals and and what they are and some of the companies' proprietary uh, interests in not disclosing what their particular formula is. Um, I actually worry a little bit less about some of those chemicals than I worry about the. The, what they call the produced water, which is after it's fracked, you have all the hydrocarbons coming up, which of course is what they're after. But you, you know, those are pretty nasty sometimes. Uh, you know, with all the hydrocarbons you get associated with petroleum and that sort of thing. You know, benzene and toluene and that, that sort of stuff that comes back up. The frac chemicals they put down are fairly dilute, and there a lot of them are commonly used chemicals for a lot of processes that we have a fair amount of experience with. Uh, that's not to say they should be treated cavalierly. Um, and one of the big issues is the, is the water that is used, both the water they put down, but equally important or even more important is the water that comes back up after they release the pressure. You get uh, what they call produced water. Uh, does that answer your question there, Jay? Yeah, it does. I, I, I guess to clarify, though, because I, I was one of the people that thought the chemicals that they used were, were the big secret, and the, you, know, you were saying their proprietary chemicals were, were, are famously known to be bad, but maybe that's not the issue. It's just that there's a preponderance of water that comes out that's, that's spoiled. Well, yeah, there, there's a, a lot of water that comes out, and then they have to do something with that water. Uh, you know, dumping it into a river or a, a lake or something like that is not acceptable. You know, then there's, well, what do you do with all this water? Well, then there's injection wells. Uh, there are treatment systems for it, uh, but it, but it, it does become a problem. They temporarily store it in either tanks, which is the preferred option, or in open pits which is not the preferred option. And, and if it's stored in these pits, there's a chance for the pits to overflow. There's a chance for the temporary piping that runs to the pits to leak. Uh, there's a chance for the pits themselves to leak. Uh, you know, with bad practices, that becomes risky. Is it those leaks that are causing the problems with residents' groundwater? Because that seems to be a major issue is people turning on their taps and having something horrible come out. Is that due to leaks from the, the wells holding that excess water? This, this is where it gets difficult, Rebecca. I mean, it really gets difficult to know 
where the factual information is. I don't want to shock you or anything, but sometimes there's <laughs> things on the Internet that aren't 100% true. What? <laughs> yeah, Come on. <laughs> don't even joke around, <laughs> man. <laughs> That's um, where we live, okay? And sometimes uh, industry or environmentalists will produce movies and videos that aren't exactly 100% true as well. And so there, there's risk involved with this. Um, when, they, when they drill the hole, the, the critical part of drilling one of these holes is the vertical section. And they, they drill this hole down, you know, over a mile underground. And after they drill it, then down through the, the aquifers where groundwater and surface water are going to be involved, well, the whole thing, actually, they case it with steel. Well, the steel is not strong enough to hold the pressure that they, they put on these wells in order to force the rock apart a mile underground. And so then around the steel, they put concrete. And the steel and the concrete together are not strong enough to support this pressure. The steel... The concrete, then that concrete has to bond to the steel and has to bond to the bedrock in order for you to have something that's strong enough to hold all of this pressure. And so herein is an area where human failings, the vagaries of nature, the problems in the rock formation that you're drilling through, things that are unexpected can go wrong sometimes. And there's chances of them going wrong if best practices are not strictly adhered to, if people get in too big of a hurry, if things look like they're wrong and they just try to chance it out. And so when they put this high pressure on there, then it can break. And in, if it breaks in the wrong place, then uh, chemicals and frac water and produced water can all then spread horizontally into aquifers. Now, the industry will tell you this never happens. Environmentalists will have you think it happens with every single well. The truth is somewhere in between. It doesn't happen with every single well, but there have been uh, significant instance, incidents of contamination. So I just tried to look into the literature myself just to answer one question, and that is, is there evidence to show that fracking results in the contamination of groundwater, you know, the kind of water that eventually could end up in, in, people's, uh, in people's wells or in their homes? And I, I really couldn't uh, find a definitive answer it seems like there are a lot of studies which show that, like for example, just to read you a few titles, hydraulic fracturing not responsible for methane migration, methane contamination of drinking water caused by hydraulic fracturing remains unproven, uh, and you know multiple studies with essentially the conclusion that we don't have the evidence right now to conclude that this is actually leading to water contamination, although there are some studies which show, uh, or at least purport to show that there is evidence, at least in certain situations, where that is occurring, where wells, for example, are contaminated with methane, and the, the concentration of methane is proportional to their distance from a nearby well that's being fracked. Uh, so there seems to be conflicting evidence out there. The EPA essentially has said that, that they linked to a study saying that right now it seems that this, this uh, is safe. And they were, this was specifically looking at hydraulic fracturing of coal bed methane, 
which seems to be one of the concerns because it's closer to the surface. And that showed that it was safe. But the EPA is saying that they are in the middle of a, of a big study looking into this question, as if we really don't know the answer. And so it's just up in the air until at least you know, the next bit of information we'll get it will be the EPA completing this study. So uh, have you looked at, at the research? I mean, do you, do you get the same sense that I do? Or what do you think about that? Steve, I, I largely get the same sense the, that you get, and uh, is that if there is contamination of wells and groundwater and that sort of stuff from these high, you know hydraulically frac- fracked wells with the horizontal drilling and everything, if if it does occur, it doesn't certainly does not occur with every single drilling incident. It gets complicated, like all this stuff does. It gets terribly, terribly complicated uh, when you're dealing with individual wells and the different geology in different places. One of the issues is, especially in our area in Ohio, they've been drilling for oil and gas at different formations for over 100 years. And there's in the early years, there was very little regulation, and all around Ohio, holes have been poked in the ground that have not been uh, properly plugged. And so it's possible if things go wrong and the whole fracturing process, things happen that aren't foreseeable, that deep down at some level below this really strong casing, uh, that things will move and do what they call communicate with an old well hole that maybe nobody even knew was there. And then suddenly the stuff is moving up through an uncased well. There have been cases of that happening uh, in places. It certainly doesn't happen with every single well, as some people would have you believe. And But it certainly doesn't never happen either. So it can happen... And it's going to depend on site-by-site thing. The studies on uh, particularly the methane contamination where you have people, you know, that hold a match in front of their faucet and it flames, again, it gets very, very complicated because methane occurs naturally lots and lots of places and under lots and lots of circumstances. Essentially, when anything organic decomposes anaerobically, it's going to produce methane. It gets very difficult to find that smoking gun. They actually have to look at isotopic ratios and everything to get the, no pun intended, smoking gun of the flaming faucet. There's been cases where it's been people have claimed that their flaming faucet is the result of fracking nearby and it hasn't been borne out, but the people are not willing to accept that finding. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the same old same old, same old with any controversy involving very complicated science. Is the industry essentially saying, well, it's not that fracking is causing methane. It's just that there's methane where we're fracking, but that's why we're going there because that's where the methane well, is. They're saying that, and uh, in probably in the majority of cases, they're perfectly right, you know, because yeah. there's methane is pervasive at some level, you know, just anywhere where you have. When you see a bubble come up in a swamp, it's methane most of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the EPA in general is being reasonable over this issue, or do you think that they're under like political pressure to maybe downplay the risks, or do you accept their assessment? Uh, there, there's always political pressure 
uh, on something like this, especially when the stakes, the financial stakes, are very, very high. So I, you know, I would not discount the political pressure. I would like to think that the the EPA is looking at it pretty hard. I don't think the science is complete yet. I mean, of course, science is never really totally complete ever. And I think uh, support for continued research and monitoring is essential. Gordon, before you were talking about regulation, and then that makes me think that there are people that are going to benefit from having little or no regulation. The states do most of the regulation. We're fortunate in Ohio in that we have a long history of oil and gas production, a long checkered history, and our regulatory situation isn't as bad. There are other states where this technology is new. They don't have a history of oil and gas, and they're scrambling. They, you know, they don't know what to do uh, in the regulatory environment. I would say it is clearly not the time for any state to relax regulation, and it's probably very wise for a state to say, hold on, wait, We're, we shouldn't be doing this until we have a solid regulatory system set up. That's the answer as far as regulation goes. It's state by state. It needs to be done. No state should be relaxing regulation. They should be stepping it up and doing whatever they can to assure best practices when these wells are drilled because regardless of of what anybody claims, they are not risk-free. There is a strong element of risk. Uh, You know, if you just read the black and white things you're liable to see on the Internet or uh, in propaganda or whatever, you're going to, you know, depending on which side you're on, you're going to think that the industry people all have two horns and a tail or the environmentalists are all out to make us live in mud huts without lights and electricity. That's not the case. The industry people, they don't wake up in the morning thinking, what can I do to go pollute the world? The environmentalists don't wake up in the morning saying, what can I do to block any progress? It, it gets to be complicated. Interestingly enough, I've learned more talking with industry people that are engineers that work in drilling this stuff. Those guys, they generally want to do the right thing. The environmentalists on, on their side, you know, they want to do the right thing too, which is to make sure that if we have to produce this stuff, it's produced in as safe a manner as possible. So to point at a bad guy, I would say the the PR machines, I think, are probably bad guys because they distort, distort, distort uh, from both directions. I would say the politician that takes the very short-term view of this and uh, the people that are just in it for money, a whole aspect we haven't even talked about yet is the legal side, which is what was the reality check for me is with old leases on our lands from the 1960s, we have virtually no say over what the oil and gas companies come on our land to do. And so, you know, we have had to try to come up with a very strong defensive strategy to make sure that uh, things that happen on our land are not done in a way that we really don't want to see happen. 
Yeah, it's an interesting issue. Again, I think we cover a lot of issues where it it is hard. The science is a little ambiguous, or maybe it's a lot ambiguous, but there seems to be a lot more misinformation on both sides because it's a political issue. And you just want to say, can we just you know see what the evidence shows and make a reasonable decision here? Uh, but I guess that's just not the way people operate. We're political animals and ideological animals. Well, what I would say is, is um, since I've spoken in a way that's likely to have offended both environmentalists and industry guys, I bet your message boards are going to really light up on this one. <laughs> yeah, we'll forward you all the angry emails. I, I find, though, uh, you don't have to when, do that. You, it, when you piss off both sides, you probably have a reasonable position. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. All right. Thanks a lot, Gordon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Come to Nexus, NECSS, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. This is Jamie Ian Swiss, and I'll be your onstage host Saturday and Sunday, April 21st and 22nd in New York City. At Nexus, where you'll meet smart, science-minded folks just like yourself. Scientists, skeptics, journalists, raconteurs, and more. Nexus means connection, and you'll connect with some familiar names and some new ones, but none you'll soon forget. And you'll also share the same air as the amazing skeptic himself, James Randi. All that and a little magic, too, courtesy of yours truly, the honest liar. So come join us at the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, April 21st and 22nd in New York City, and help make a little more sense of your world. Register now at nexus.org. That's N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G. Nexus, at the crossroads of science and skepticism. Evan. Hey, Steve. It's time for Who's That Noisy? And we have a couple weeks to get caught up on. It is. Yes, yes. We played for you the Noisy from two weeks ago, and we announced that it was, in fact, the uh, ice sheets on the Black Sea that were all sloshing around and crunching up against each other and making horrific noises. And uh, the But we said we would announce this week who guessed correctly first, and that was a listener by the name of Tamarillicent. From cool. the message boards. I like that name. That's a cool name. Tamarillicent. Very, very cool. Very clever. So they guessed first correctly that that's exactly what that was. So congratulations. That was from episode 344. Last week's episode, episode 345, let's go ahead and play that noisy. That the best way to communicate an idea is to tell a story about it. Do you guys remember that voice? You should because we interviewed this person and I took that clip specifically from that interview. Ah. Oh. Peter Sagal. Oh, yeah, Peter. Ah. Host of National Public Radio Game Show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. He's Based pl- on science or fiction. Little known fact. That's right. He stole that idea from me five years before I ever had it. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. What a rip. <laughs> he's, also <laughs> an Amer- he's also a playwright, a screenwriter. He's an actor. And he's credited as co-writer of the movie Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. It's a little... Thing I what? didn't know. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it says. So. Huh. Good for him. Also from the message boards, SPL Chief, in their very first posting to our message boards, guessed correctly, Peter Sagel. Good so job. Well done. Con- congratulations. Are you ready to hear this week's? I am. We are looking for a theme this week. I'm going to play for you three very, very short clips. You might be able to guess on your own what they are, but we are looking for the theme. What do these three noises have in common? And here they are. Hmm. Interesting. 
All right. So once again, we're looking for the theme of those noises. What do they have in common? Info at theskepticsguide.org, sguforums.com. Give it your best guess. And of course, good luck to everybody. All right. Thanks, Evan. Let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is dinosaurs. So all three dinosaur-related news items. Rawr. And here we go. I like dinosaurs, but everything I know about them is fiction. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all movie stuff. (laughs) Okay. Tyrannosaurus Rex died out because it couldn't brush its teeth. That's right. <laughs> Tiny arms. Really? Wow. All right, here we go. Item number one. That's all I know. An analysis of Triceratops and Taurosaurus skulls indicates that they were indeed two separate species, not young and adult forms of one species, as some paleontologists have suggested. Item number two, a new analysis concludes that T. rex had the strongest bite of any animal to have ever lived on the earth. And item number three, a new species of dinosaur, Spinops, a cousin to Triceratops, was recently described and named in literature 95 years after the fossils were first discovered. Evan, your turn to go first. So, Triceratops and Taurosaurus skull indicate they were indeed two separate species. Boy, Steve, I remember we've talked about this before. A couple of years ago, we went to the Peabody Museum, and this particular topic came up. I don't quite exactly remember all the details about what we spoke about that day, but it was definitely Triceratops and Taurosaurus. I know that. Do you remember, Steve? Oh, yeah. So this, I know this is a, this particular topic interests you. I mean, dinosaurs always do, but specifically the Triceratops Taurosaurus. I know you've talked about it before as an example. I'll say, you know, we, um, uh, in fact, discussed this topic on the show and interviewed a paleontologist about it. So, um... I'm gonna. I'm leaning that that one is science, um, because I think you do a good job of keeping up to date with that, and I think it's a cool little, interesting further tidbit on the topic itself. Uh, T. Rex had the strongest bite of any animal to have ever lived on Earth. So yeah, uh, they could do testing in some ways. I'm sure to measure what the bite. Uh, for the force behind the bite of extinct species are. I, I don't doubt that. My problem here is of any animal to have ever lived on the earth. That's a big range of animals. If you think about how many animals there have ever been or that we know of. But the last one, the new species, Spinops. Am I, spin-ops? Am I saying that correctly? Why not? I don't see anything wrong with that. It's cool that they're able to, you know, do that, make that more accurate uh, analysis of it. And But I think just because it's 95 years after the fossils were first discovered, uh, I don't think that's a big deal at all. So T-Rex in the strongest bite of any animal. I'm saying that one's fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, that's the one I was leaning towards as well, mostly because before I knew, heard which what the options were, I was already thinking about T-Rexes and teeth. So... There's something coincidence? To that. I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. Okay, that leaves me with uh, 
The other two. Yeah, and that's pretty much all I have to go on. Uh, I agree with Evan. The problem with that is whether or not, not that it, you know, it has a very strong bite. I'm sure it does, and I'm sure that scientists can conclude that um, looking at, you know, possible musculature and size of the teeth and all of that. But yeah, to have ever lived on the Earth is a huge claim that I'm not sure is supported. Triceratops and Taurosaurus. Yeah, I, I suppose that could happen because as far as I know, the, you know, we talked about this before about them being a young and adult form of the same species. But at the time, I don't think that that was a conclusion. I think that was a theory as a hypothesis that had been, uh, put forward. And, you know, it was, as far as I know, it was still, it was still up in the air. So. That one, I, I can believe that. Spinops. Uh, described and named in the literature 95 years after the fossils were first discovered. A good friend of mine showed me around her museum, the Na- Natural History Museum in London. We looked at all of the different specimens they have in their back rooms, and they have so much stuff that they haven't even gotten around to cataloging it all. And there's recently a huge discovery, I think at that museum, of Darwin specimens or something that nobody realized were just laying around. So I totally believe that there was a dinosaur, a new species of dinosaur that was just sitting there for almost a century waiting for somebody on their lunch break to be like, what's that? So that one is, I'm pretty sure that one's science. Um, so that leaves me with the other two. I'm going to go with the, with the T-Rex one. And my thinking is the same as Evan. It, you know, stronger than every animal to have ever lived on earth is a huge claim. And I don't think it's supported. Okay, Bob. Okay. The, um, Triceratops and Taurosaurus skulls. Yeah. I think, uh, it wasn't a real firm conclusion, uh, when, that came out in the news, so I could definitely see somebody taking a, a close look and saying, uh, yeah, well, no, it actually really is um, two different species. Um, the second one, though, Steve, is ambiguous. When you say to ever have lived on Earth, do you mean a land and water, or do you mean just land? Land, land and water. Land and water. Yeah, not terrestrial, oh, okay. just of any animal to have lived. All right, that so that's decisive for me because I could actually see a T. Rex having the, the strongest bite of any land animal. I mean, the thing was truly huge. When land and water, that's where I think the uh, the downfall of that one is. Um, the, so therefore, the third one, yeah, I totally agree with the uh, the dinosaur that they found us almost a century later and identified. Yeah, I've 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 heard of examples, not this one specifically, but I have heard of other examples of of new species found decades after after it was just kind of like dug up and stuck in a drawer and nobody looked at it. So so if you're including um, land and water for T. Rex, right? Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to say that that one is that one is false. Okay, Jay. I've been thinking about that one since the beginning, and to say that, first of all, like even stronger than a shark, like a great white, you know, but at the same time, a T-Rex was, in my recollection of dinosaurs, T-Rex is as badass as you can get. Going to the first one about Triceratops and the Taurosaurus, I don't know, everything I, everything that I've read about them says that they, they were the, the adult and child version of the same species, and, uh, that's a pretty big turnaround. And then finally, the last one, the, the what about the new species of dinosaur, the spin-ops. Uh, this is really difficult. 
I'll go with the one about the adult and child dinosaurs being separate as the fake. So you all agree that a new species of dinosaur, Spinops, a cousin to Triceratops, was recently described and named in the literature 95 years after the fossils were first discovered. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Yay. Yay. And you guys hit on it. I mean, especially Rebecca, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there's lots of fossils sitting in museum drawers, too many to be cataloged, let alone fully described. Um, you could you know, spend your career digging around in museums rather than digging around in the ground and describe all kinds of new species. This is one where the fossils were discovered 95 years ago, and they were first described in a recent paper. Uh, a cool-looking creature looks like a triceratops, you know, that same basic uh, uh, body type, four-legged herbivore, kind of a beaked mouth, a frill with horns. This has one horn on its nose. It has two horns going back from its frill and then two hooks going forward from its frill, which is a unique structure that hasn't been seen on any previous dinosaur before, these sort of forward-facing frill hooks. Not really sure what they were all about, but cool. Uh, Let's go to number one. An analysis of Triceratops and Taurosaurus skulls indicates that they were indeed two separate species, not young and adult forms of one species. Jay, you think this one is the fiction? The rest of you think this one is science? And this one is science. Yay. Hooray. This has been a this has been a controversy. You know, there were those who said, "No, listen, the Taurosaurus is a big Triceratops," and others who said, "Nope, they're just different species." The question is, how much change would or, or could the uh, the the horns and the frill and whatever how how much change morphological change can it undergo as part of getting older? The Taurosaurus is not just a big Triceratops. There are there are some differences in the bony structures. Um, so with some paleontologists saying that, hey, there are examples in, in dinosaurs of really significant changes happening as part of the maturing process. This would be nothing new. But what the recent analysis shows, they, they looked at the sutures in the skulls of Triceratops and Taurosaurus, uh, and they found that uh, of the specimens analyzed, they found evidence some Taurosaurus skulls were immature and some Triceratops skulls were adult. So that's incompatible with the notion that Triceratops are all immature and Taurosaurus are all adult. So that seems to destroy the notion that they're both the same species. This was done by Nicholas Longrich at Yale, at my university. And that's, Evan, as you say, they own the Peabody, they own the Taurosaurus uh, specimen there. And we've definitely been on the side of these are two separate species. Taurosaurus is its own species. So not surprising that it's coming from that camp. But still, if the analysis holds up to peer review, it seems that 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 would pretty much end that particular controversy. But we'll see. We'll see what the other side has to say. Go Team Taurosaurus! (laughs) Which Which means... That a new analysis concludes that T. rex had the strongest bite of any animal to have ever lived on the earth is fiction. Now, did any of you guys see this headline? Nope. I did not. No. Oh, damn. I was hoping to get you all on the headline. Even, all right, so there was an art, this is the whole basis of my strategy this week, was that there was a, (laughs) uh, 
There was a BBC article on this news item with a big picture of a T-Rex on it. Come on. And, <laughs> and they that. got it wrong. The story was wrong. I love that because then if you read that story, <laughs> you know, you Steve, would get science or fiction you wrong. You really shouldn't. You shouldn't love that <laughs> science reporting just because you might score imaginary internet points during your <laughs> science or fiction game. Yet strangely, I do. <laughs> um, or not. So, so they they didn't qualify it. They just said the strongest bite ever. And then, but I always read around, check it out, because that I, that struck me as like, really, really, of any animal ever, there are some other some pretty pretty big predators out there. You're like the comic book guy at the front of the, <laughs> the you know William Shatner's on stage. Well, what about in episode two thirty five? Well, listen, hey, I had the same reaction Bob just did. So I, so I checked it out, and uh, in fact, we reported a year or so ago on. Uh, Megalodon, you guys remember? Yeah, yes. that guy. Yeah. Oh yes, and yeah. he he was supposed to have the biggest bite ever, right? right. So I, I checked, and yeah, that guy has a bigger bite uh, in terms of force. I had to do a conversion because one article gave it in newtons, and the other article gave it in tons. Newtons. But when you do the conversion, <laughs> the the uh, the Megalodon has a which is which is a shark ancestor has a, a bite force of between 10.8 and 18.2 tons. And the new estimate of the T-Rex bite force raises it from previous estimates of about 3 tons to now about 5.8 to 6 tons. So still only Jeez. a third of Megalodon. Go yeah. Team Megalodon! <laughs> now, now I, I read other reports of the same news story, and they said that T-Rex has the uh, the most powerful bite of any living or extinct terrestrial animal. They did qualify. So good job, everyone but Jay. And Jay, do you uh, have a quote for us this week? This is a quote sent by Michael Akers. And uh, this is a quote from French author Henry René Albert Guy de Maupassant. <laughs> I love it. Whoa. I think that was Guy. <laughs> I thought it was and Henri. 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 <laughs> my quote, my Jay, thing. I'm saying I, it the way I, I want. Mean, Jay, okay. I do that. This, I, do that I Americanize well. I everything. I'm American. The quote is, how weak our mind is, how quickly it is terrified and unbalanced as soon as we are confronted with a small, incomprehensible fact. Instead of dismissing the problem with, we do not understand because we cannot find the cause, we immediately imagine terrible mysteries and supernatural powers. Henry, Renee, oh. Albert, Guy, do muscle bomb. And Albert. <laughs> and, his, and his orchestra. <laughs> That's actually yeah, from, you... from the book La Orla. Thank you, Jay. Jay, do you have an announcement this week? So, Steve, as you know, we're having Nexus this year, April 21 and 22. I think we mentioned once before on the show that we're actually supporting a Nexus student sponsorship program. And we're looking for applicants. You need to get them in quickly because the deadline is coming up very soon. Uh, the applicants must be between 16 and 24 years of age, and they must either attend high school, college, or graduate school. So if, for more information to find out if you qualify and what you need to do in order to apply, go to nexus.org, that's N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G, forward slash students, forward slash rules. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thank sure, you. Science and fiction suck. See you next week. 
<laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.